Welcome, beautiful world, to Barbarian Noetics, the podcast dedicated to the human spirit. I'm your host, Conan Tanner. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the BMP. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm coming at you on Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, 2020. And some of you may know, some of you may not, that uh, the real kind of meat and potatoes behind Cinco de Mayo is not just a bunch of, um, you know, uh, frat boys drinking Coronas in Cancun, but it actually is to commemorate the Battle of Puebla which took place on May 5th, of course, 1862, near Puebla City during the second French intervention in Mexico. The battle ended in a victory for the Mexican army over the French army. The Mexican victory at Puebla against a much better equipped and larger French army provided a significant morale boost to the Mexicans and also helped slow the French advance towards Mexico City. So here we are on uh, Cinco de Mayo, honoring the Battle of Puebla and the Mexican army kicking the ass of the French all the way back in 1862. And this uh, episode is going to be a little mini-sode and it's basically going to be kicking off what is going to be a series of mini-sodes. Now they're going to be interspersed with the usual interview shows and all that, so don't worry for those of you who enjoy the interviews they're not going away i'm just peppering in some other stuff keeping you on your toes so this is going to be a multi-series um uh, um, multiple installments series of minisodes all about not mexico but cuba so we're going to be examining cuban history starting all the way back uh, before european contact when the taino people were living on cuba the indigenous folks of Cuba. And we're going to move all the way up uh, through the present moment, basically, um, and everything that happened in between. Now, uh, obviously, a very significant figure in Cuban history is one Fidel Castro. So this is also going to be a series of minisodes exploring the life of Fidel and offering... um, Offering, especially to American and Australian and English and any listeners who are kind of in the Western, Western world, Western zeitgeist, offering uh, the rest of the story. Because for myself, I obviously grew up in the U.S. I went to public school and pretty much all we knew, all I knew about Fidel was like Fidel bad, bad Fidel. <laughs> bad Fidel, he was, a, he ter- was tyrannical. His people despised him and he ruled over Cuba with an iron fist. And um, until I started reading Noam Chomsky, I didn't really have any reason to question that narrative. But lately I've just become so fascinated with the life of Fidel Castro, just a very uh, unique, there's no one else like him in history. And it's so interesting to get a full picture of his life.
following is the original audio of a speech Fidel Castro gave in 1966 to a large audience of third world revolutionaries. He speaks in Spanish, so this is the English translation of what he says, and then we'll go into the clip. We revolutionary Cubans understand our international obligations. Our people understand their obligation because they understand that we face a common enemy. The enemy that threatens Cuba is the same enemy that threatens everyone else. This is why we say and we, we proclaim that Cuban fighters will lend support to any revolutionary movement in any corner of the earth. And as we're going to get to in this, as the series uh, continues, you're going to see that he was a man of his word and he did uh, support personally and send hundreds of thousands of Cuban fighters to support revolutionary movements throughout Africa, Central America, and South America, all through the 60s and the 70s. So here's the clip of Fidel in 1966. In 1966, before an audience of third world revolutionaries, Fidel Castro reiterated his most unwavering commitment. Así entendemos los revolucionarios cubanos nuestro deber internacionalista. Así entiende nuestro pueblo sus deberes porque entiende que el enemigo es uno, el mismo que nos ataca a nosotros en nuestras costas y en nuestras tierras, el mismo que ataca a los demás. Y por eso decimos y proclamamos que con combatientes cubanos podrá contar el movimiento revolucionario en cualquier rincón de la tierra. So I'm listening right now to an audiobook. It's called Fidel Castro, My Life. And obviously, so it was um, basically the entire book is just a series of interviews 
uh, given when Fidel was 80 years old, so it was towards the end of his life. Um, Fidel passed on when he was 90 at the age of uh, the year 2016. So this was 10 years before, um, at 2006. And the interview was given by a Spanish journalist, Ignacio Ramonet. And um, so the audiobook is 26 hours long. I don't know how long the actual novel is. And I'm kind of working my way through this audiobook. I'm enjoying it immensely. And so I'm going to be peppering in some of the stuff that I learn in the audiobook and sharing it with you guys. So again, just trying to flesh out the, the story, flesh out the history of Fidel, and then beyond that, flesh out the history of Cuba in general. Um, so yeah, so that is kind of what we're going to be doing. Now before, um, so yeah, it's going to be a multi-part series on Cuba, Cuban, Cuban history, the life of Fidel Castro, the successful Cuban communist revolution of 1959, the U.S. government's unceasing hostility towards Fidel and Cuba, the CIA's 638 failed assassination attempts. I'll repeat that. The CIA's 638 failed assassination attempts to kill Fidel Castro. They never got him. And we're going to go through some of the some of the the ideas cooked up by the CIA, which are going to make you laugh and cry. I mean, really bizarre shit. Um, but Fidel survived all of them. And again, uh, we're going to leading us right up to the present moment uh, with the senior Communist Party stalwart Miguel Diaz Canel as the current Cuban president. And of course, Trump's maximum pressure sanctions campaign against Cuba. Trump dialed back some of the thawing of relations that had happened under Obama. One of the few things that I actually appreciate that Obama did was kind of start to restore some sanity and, and rationality to our relationship with Cuba. But of course, because it was an Obama thing, Trump's mentality is Obama bad, bad Obama, except when it comes to drone strikes. When it comes to drone strikes, they agree. And Trump has pink, picked up that mantle and actually expanded. I think Trump is the new, holds the new record for most drone strikes in a four-year period. So, uh, but again, not giving Barack a free pass on that. Barack really opened up the floodgates for just like, let's just wage dirty wars with drones forever. And of course, that's that's totally Trump style. Anyways, uh, if it's not related to like murdering people in poor countries across the world, then if it's an Obama thing, Trump despises it. And so he dialed back the song of relations and now is doing one of these maximum pressure sanctions campaigns that we love to do and uh, basically just pushing Cuba uh, farther away from us and more towards uh, Russia and China and other nations that will actually uh, trade with them. Obviously Cuba is very reliant on international trade because they, um, you know, I shouldn't really talk. I know that they used to only, like sugar was the main export from Cuba. Um, I'm not actually sure now what the current export is, so I'm going to shut up about that. We'll get to that later. But I do know that they are obviously, like all countries, they're dependent on international trade. And so if the U.S. is not going to be, if our whole the, the American hegemonic kind of network of, of trading click is not going to engage with Cuba, then Cuba obviously has to trade with you know, Russia and China, big spooky Russia and China. So instead of kind of, you know, extending an olive branch to this really remarkable island nation that's only 90 miles, actually, correct, it's actually 103 miles. I did a little research. 
People say it's 90 miles between Florida and Cuba. It's actually the shortest distance is 103 miles. Anyways, we could have like this really beautiful relationship with this wonderful island nation and learn from one another. And, you know, um, the Cubans offered to, ha to send health professionals to the U.S., to New York City, to help with the coronavirus thing. And of course, we rejected them. But the, the Cuban health system is, is phenomenal. And even though they are a poor country, they have a really, really top-notch uh, universal healthcare system for the citizens. And also they send healthcare professionals around the world to support other nations in solidarity. So they did that um, with the coronavirus, with um, sending folks right into the epicenter in Italy um, to help. And so Cuba has a history of, their healthcare workers have a history of going and helping wherever they are needed. And um, so again, but instead of having, you know, benefiting mutually from having this remarkable nation right off our shores, instead we are going back to the old Cold War mentality of maximum pressure sanctions. So before I get into this anymore, I want to uh, share with you my favorite quote by Fidel Castro. We do not exploit our dolphins for profit. That's Fidel right there, and uh, I love that. I don't exploit dolphins for profit either, so I can really resonate with that. Um, and so I came up with, this is a little bit non sequitur, but you know, we're gonna be talking a lot about, obviously, the Communist Party of Cuba. And so um, I wanted to offer uh, alternative to, I know in the United States, we've been sort of conditioned and brainwashed to consider, uh, uh, you know, even just mild democratic socialist reforms are like terrifying as we saw in the Bernie Sanders campaign, but much less communism is like a four letter word and Marxism is absolutely terrifying. So I was thinking that when you all are engaging in political discourse with people, uh, you can just do a little verbal jujitsu, and instead of saying socialism, you say George H.W. Bush. Instead of saying Marxism, you say Ellen DeGeneres. And instead of saying communism, you say two and a half men. And in this uh, alternate language system, capitalism is Geraldo. So I'm going to read you some quotes with these new uh, semantics and, and you'll see how much more palatable it'll be to the, to the American psyche. This is a quote from Noam Chomsky. With the development of industrial Geraldo, a new and unanticipated system of injustice, it is libertarian George H.W. Bush that has preserved and extended the radical humanist message of the Enlightenment and the classical liberal ideals that were perverted into an ideology to sustain the emerging social order. See how much easier that goes down? Here's a quote by the man himself, Fidel Castro. There is not two and a half men or Ellen DeGeneres but representative democracy and social justice in a well-planned economy. Makes sense, makes sense. Here's a quote by Tony Jute. I started, my, I started work on my first French history book in 1969 on George H.W. Bush in Provence in 1974 and on the essays in Ellen DeGeneres and the French Left in 1978 
Conversely, my first non-academic publication, a review in the TLS, did not come until the late 1980s, and it was not until 1993 that I published my first piece in the New York Review. And finally, uh, with the new semantic technique, uh, we're going to do a quote here by Jean-Francois Lyotard. I suck ass at, at trying to pronounce French names. I'm sorry, guys. L-Y-O-T-A-R-D. Lyotard? Lyotard? Jean-Francois Lyotard. What guides Ellen DeGeneres, then, is a different model of society and a different conception of the f function of the knowledge that can be produced by society and acquired from it. Boom! All right. So... I'm going to take a quick break here, and then we're going to get into the early history, the pre-European history of Cuba, and a little bit about the, um, the quote-unquote discovery, not really the discovery, but the when asshole of them all, Chris Columbus, uh, came upon and fell upon Cuba in 1492. That'll be right after a break. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Con número y sin nombre para identificar 
All right, welcome back to the BMP Minisode, first installment here of the history of Cuba and the life of Fidel Castro. And we're going to start off here with the uh, pre-Columbian indigenous people of the Caribbean. And these folks were the Taino. T-A-I-N-O. So there's two schools of thought that have emerged regarding the origin of the indigenous people of the Caribbean, including Cuba, the Taino. Uh, one group of scholars contends that the ancestors of the Taino came from the center of the Amazon basin and are related to the Yanomama. This is indicated by linguistics, cultural, and ceramic evidence. According to this theory, they migrated to the Orinoco Valley on the north coast. From there, they reached the Caribbean by way of what is now Guyana and Venezuela into Trinidad, proceeding along the Lesser Antilles to Cuba and the Bahaman Arch bah Bahamian, Bahamian? Wow, I've not said that word before. Bahamian Archipelago, Archipelago of the Bahamas for those uh, listening along at home. <laughs> Evidence that supports this theory includes the tracing of the ancestral cultures of these people to the Orinoco Valley and their languages to the Amazon basin. And then the alternate theory, known as the Circum-Caribbean theory, contends that the ancestors of the Taino diffused from the Colombian Andes. Julian H. Stewart, who originated this concept, suggests a migration from the Andes to the Caribbean and a parallel migration into Central America and into the Guyanas, Venezuela, and the Amazon basin of South America. Taino culture, as documented, is believed to have developed in the Caribbean. So we're going to start off now with the creation story of the Taino. Out of the misty, murky, mysterious, far distant past, this is the creation story of the pre-Columbian indigenous peoples of Cuba and the Caribbean. The Creation In the beginning, Atabe created the heavens, the earth, and other celestial bodies. Atabe has always existed. Atabe was the original mother. Atabe was the powerful creator. But there was no life. There was no light. Everything existed as in a deep sleep. And so it was for a long time. Atabe finally realized that something was missing. She had two sons whom she crafted out of magical invisible elements. The two sons were named Yukahu and Guacar. I'm very, very sorry for the pronunciation, by the way. It's uh, Yukahu, uh, Y-U-C-A-J-U, and Guacar, G-U-A-C-A-R. Yukahu, Yukahu, I think that's how you pronounce it, Yukahu, was preoccupied with the absence of light and life. Atabe was content because Yukahu could now 
finish what she had started. And Jukahu created the sun and the moon to illuminate the earth. He took precious stones from the earth and placed them in the sky. These stones helped the moon illuminate the night. The earth was fertile and from it grew plants and trees. Yukahu then created animals and birds to live among the plants and trees. Then Yukahu decided to create something new, something different, a cross between an animal and a god. In this way, the first Amn, A-M-N, and soul was created. He called the first man Lokuo. Lokuo was happy on earth with all the beauty that surrounded him. He knelt before Yukahu to offer thanks. Guakar looked with envy at all his brother had created. He stole away to a secluded place and did nothing for a while. But his envy overcame him, and he began to taint the creations of his brother. He changed his name, becoming the terrible god of evil, Jurakan, or I guess Hurakan. Hurakan created the winds. That's interesting. So according to the Taino creation myth is the terrible god of evil Huracan who created the winds and I have a, an inkling that has to do with the destructive power of hurricanes. Sometimes he carried them with such force that they destroyed what Yukahu had created. He uprooted trees and killed animals. That would be the hurricanes. Lokuo's happiness turned to fear. He could no longer enjoy the beauty of nature. In addition to sending powerful winds, Huracan made the earth tremble. This was one of his favorite games. During one of the most powerful quakes, the American continent divided in two. This is how the Antilles came to be. But Lokuo continued living on earth, and Yukahu created other gods to help him. Lokuo create, learned to create images of these gods, which he called the Semies. Sem Yukahu presented Lokuo with fire, and he learned to cook his own food. He learned to make cassava from yuca. But Lokuo lives alone on earth. One day, inspired by so much natural beauty, he pried open his belly button and gave way to two beings in his likeness, a man and a woman. The man was named Guayoyona and the woman Yaya. The descendants of these two people populated the earth, but the descendants of Guayurona and Yaya suffered immensely with the floods and strong winds that Hurakan sent, and he sent evil spirits that caused problems in the lives of the people. These evil spirits were called Republicans. No, I'm kidding. The spirits destroyed the canoes in the river, threw stones upon homes, and hid the ball with which the people were playing. Now that's a dick move. That is a dick move. Hide the ball with which the people were playing? Come on now. They also brought illness and strife to the people. So that is how the Tainos explain natural phenomena and the origin of good and evil. The Caribs who arrived from islands southeast of Puerto Rico were evil, according to the Taino. They were fierce warriors who destroyed entire villages and kidnapped the women. The Caribs were considered messengers of Huracan. And if Huracan sent the Caribs, perhaps Yukahu sent good people to help expel the Caribs. 
Therefore, when the Spaniards arrived in Puerto Rico, the Tainos, and this is, I, this is now the, um, this particular story comes from the history of Puerto Rico, so they're, they're, now they're mentioning things from a specific Puerto Rican perspective. Therefore, when the Spaniards arrived in Puerto Rico, the Tainos no, no doubt thought they were sent by Yukahu. They were wrong. Interesting. I didn't realize that, that the Puerto Rican Tainos initially thought that the Spaniards were sent to um, help them fight off the Caribs. Anyways, um, so that is the creation myth. Let's get back into the timeline now. So the Taino spoke an Arawakan language, and they used an early form of, of writing, proto-writing, in the form of petroglyph. This is interesting. Some words that they used, such as barbacoa, hamaca, kanoa, tabaco, yuca, and huracan. Oh, I just put that together. That's the god. Huracan, that's the evil god have been incorporated into Spanish and English. So of course, Hurricane is hurricane. That's where we get the name hurricane. So the word hurricane is a Taino. It's actually the name of the Taino god of evil. That's wild. And again, I've mentioned this before, but having lived through only a category one hurricane on the big island, I can assure you that uh, hurricanes are, are scary as fuck. And then uh, yuca or batata is the sweet potato that comes from a Taino word. Tabaco is a Taino word, obviously now tobacco in English. Kanoa is a Taino word that we, English is canoe. And then barbacoa, barbecue, and hamaca, hammock. So these English words all came from the Taino, the Arawakan language of the Taino people. Barbecue, hammock, canoe, tobacco, sweet potato, and hurricane. Interesting. Alright, so now we are going to move forward through the sands of time to the infamous year 1492 when the biggest asshole who ever walked the earth, Christopher Columbus, King Dick, who uh, the fact that we still celebrate Columbus Day is in my mind just like absolute atrocity. It's like really grotesque that we celebrate that day. Um, for those of you who haven't read the people's history of the United States, Christopher Columbus was a sociopathic total asshole who would like cut the limbs off kids if they didn't bring him enough silver and shit. He was really, really terrible. Anyway, so the island of Cuba was discovered October 28th of 1492 after the disembarkment of La Pinta, La Nina, and La Santa Maria, the first three European ships under the command of the admirable Cristobal Colon or, of course, Christopher, Christopher Columbus. I'll use his English name from here on out just because it's more, I think, recognizable to people. Um, under the command of Christopher Columbus during his first trip toward the New World. Between that date and November 5th, the ships moved, the ships moved for the coast of the Orient of Cuba. And on Friday, November 2nd, Christopher Columbus designated two of his men so that during six days, they would go deep into the Cuban territory. So they landed in Barrier, which is on the east side of the island. And in honor of the Catholic king's daughter, 
his benefactors, Columbus called the island Juana, the first of various names that, success that successively became, sorry, the, the grammar's messed up here. The first of various names for the island received at this time. And finally, it was called Cuba, like a variant of the Catholic king's daughter's original name, Cubanascan. So they landed in Barrier and he laid claim for Spain and he said, the most beautiful earth that human eyes have ever seen, and he called Cuba. Two years later, when exploring the south coast of Cuba during his second trip, the admiral, the admiral would notice the diversity of the indigenous residents because the aboriginal folks of the Oriente of Cuba that accompanied him could not understand each other with the inhabitants of the western part. The population of the island was made up before, was made up for four millennia with the arrival of diverse migratory currents. The first ones probably coming from the north continent through Florida and the later ones arriving in successive waves from the mouth of Orinoco throughout the arch of the Antilles. Among those approximately 100,000 natives that populated the island when the Spanish conquest began, groups existed with different levels of socioeconomic developments. The oldest and poorest inhabitants, already almost extinguished in the 15th century, lived off of fishing and the harvest, and they manufactured their instruments with the shells of big mollusks. The more advanced group, those coming from South America, belonged to Trunco Aru Aruaco, were agriculturalists, and with their principal cultivation, the yuca, they made the cassava, food that could not eat food. They could not only eat in the moment, but could also conserve. And they manufactured objects and ceramic recipients, and they possessed a varied, sorry, I, I text, <laughs> I copied this article from, and it, I think it was translated from Spanish, so the, the grammar's all messed up, so that's why I'm kind of tripping over my words here. But so I guess there were, at the time, uh, 1492, there were, there were different types of people um, on Cuba. So it wasn't just the Taino people that we spoke of, but there were some other folks as well, indigenous folks. So now the story of the rebellion of Hatue. The situation for the Spanish conquerors became very difficult in Baracoa, which is on the east side. They hoped to find a do docile and peaceful population, but soon they had to face the attack of their inhabitants. In 1511, Diego Velasquez set out from Hispaniola to conquer the island of Caubana, or Cuba. He was preceded, however, by Hatue, who fled Hispaniola with a party of 400 in canoes and warned the in indigenous inhabitants of Cuba about what to expect from the Spaniards. The people, so Hatue came from Hispaniola, which is, of course, the island of, that's now split up between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And he went to Cuba to warn the Cubans that um, there are these fucking asshole Spaniards that are coming. Unfortunately, the people of Cuba could not believe Hatue's message, and few joined him to fight. Hatue resorted to guerrilla tactics against the Spaniards and was able to confine them to their fort at Baracoa. Hatue was able to gather about 300 armed men with macanas, stone axes, and wooden lances to confront the conquerors. The Spaniards, however, had firearms, lances, and swords of steel. 
They were protected by shields, helmets, and meshes of metal, and they counted also with the horse and the tracker dog. This Kakik no knew the an enemy's superiority that he would face. Hence, he began the tactics used by the Indians against the Spaniards. That is to say, they attacked the Spaniards for surprise and then disappeared quickly. Classic guerrilla tactic. However, lacking in the experience of military actions, these attacks were made with great shouting, uh, which alerted the Spaniards who responded with the fire of their weapons and unfortunately kind of annihilated the resistance. Um, eventually, the Spaniards succeeded in capturing Hatue, and Velasquez wanted to give a warning to the Aboriginal people of the island. So, on February 2nd, 1512, Hatue was tied to a stake and burned alive at Yara. The rebellion of Hatue constitutes the first manifestation of the fight of the indigenous people of Cuba against the exploitation of their rights to be free. So 1512, that brings us up to 1512. The Hatue's rebellion is put down and he's burned at the stake. Then in 1526, the importing of slaves from Africa begins. And then there's not a whole lot that happens on the timeline until 1762, when Havana was captured by a British force led by Admirable, Admiral, keep saying admirable, admirable, Admiral George Pocock and Lord Albermarley. That was in 1762, but then in 1763, Havana, <clears throat> Havana was returned to Spain by the Treaty of Paris. And that brings us up a uh, hundred years pass, and then the first wars of independence begin in 1868, uh, led by, sorry, the the first war was from 1868 to 1878, and it was the Ten Years' War. <coughs> excuse me. Ten Years' War of Independence that ends uh, in a truce with Spain promising reforms and greater autonomy. Unfortunately, as usual, the promises were never met. Then in 1886, slavery was abolished in Cuba. And then from 1895 to 1898, Jose Marti leads a second war of independence and the U.S. declares war on Spain. In 1898, the U.S. defeats Spain, which gives up all claims to Cuba and cedes it to the U.S. So that's where we're going to leave off today. At 1898, um, after... So initially, the, the Brits took Cuba for a little bit. Then it was returned to Spain by the Treaty of Paris. Then about 100 years pass. There was a 10-year war of independence. Um, ended with a truce, Spain made promises they never met. Then finally in 1886, slavery was abolished. And then a three-year war in 1895 to 1898, Jose Marti leads a second war of independence. And in 1898, the U.S. also defeats Spain. And Spain gives up all claims to Cuba and cedes it to the U.S. So that kind of brings us then to the modern history of the American control of the island of Cuba. And um, so we're going to start off uh, the next mini-sode with a uh, kind of look at Cuba before the Communist Revolution. Um, it's a very interesting story. I didn't, I didn't know hardly anything about this, and I'm obviously not going to get into too much of it right now, but basically before the Cuban Revolution, um, there was this gentleman, Fulgencio Batista, that ruled Cuba, 
and he was kind of like a tool for the mafia and Havana was like the Vegas of the Caribbean and it was like just t corruption and you know lots of, of seediness and uh, all the money was going to the mob and um, the people uh, were kind of just being used as tools um, anyway so we'll get into the details of that next episode and until then uh, I wish you guys all the good vibes all the love in the world I hope you're hanging in there we're getting through this people it's Cinco de Mayo um, this quarantine is gonna be over eventually and uh, all, all uh, this too shall pass we're getting through it and um, keep your head up and the BMP is gonna keep coming at you with uh, with entertainment for you and we'll talk to you later all right bye en el arte, la ciencia, el deporte, siempre hay una constante. La historia siente vergüenza, siempre antes de acostarse. La política y la guerra tienen algo en común. La verdad la cuentan los mismos y el objetivo es que siempre faltó la mitad. Miro atrás y no están las que estaban siempre al lado, las que siempre faltarán. Mujeres que hicieron historia, mujeres murieron sin gloria. Buscar referentes en libros, en la escuela no tienen memoria. Hagan de Tesalia, la llamaron bruja. Por predecir eclipses, por conocer la luna. Ada Lovelace, matemática y visionaria. Trabajó con los números y los puso en una máquina. Y se habló sobre la evolución. Chin, si fue una pirata que comandó una legión. Pamela Linton Travels, polo en paraguas. Contra griegos, romanos y egipcios, estaba Cleopatra. J.K. Rowling se llama Joan, pero vendió más al esconder su nombre real. Como otras atrás que no se atrevieron a firmar por miedo a la hoguera. La iglesia, el Estado, la prensa, miedo que tiene cualquiera. Miedo que tiene cualquiera.
Let's go.